Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. My guest today is Colin Dickey, who is a writer, speaker, and academic who's made a career out of collecting unusual objects and hidden histories all over the country. Um, his latest book is called The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Welcome, Colin. So good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is great. This is super fun. Yeah. I was going to start with a real philosophical question about why we're drawn to unexplained phenomenon. But rather than do that, please just tell listeners and me about the Kentucky meat shower and what the hell that was. Because it's right. Sounds- we should cut absolutely to the chase and yeah. get the Kentucky meat shower because there's really nothing <laughs> like it, literally or figuratively. Um, so let's see. Um, let's see if I can remember all the details from memory, but this is May of 1876 in Olympia Springs, uh, Bath County, Kentucky. And um, a woman is outside with her grandson when meat begins falling from the sky. Chunks of meat, uh, some uh, small, some a couple inches in, I guess, diameter or whatever, um, <laughs> in length um, of various sizes. Um, and it's a, it's a cloudless day, so that's not coming from rain or anything. And also it's meat. And so, right, so, okay, so this is like, <laughs> this is just one of those things that's just, it just happened, right? You know, so like, and it's not like, like people picked up the meat, they put it in jars. Like there's like they a tasted rec- it. They ta- yes, right. Okay, so there was there's a couple townspeople who tasted it, uh, <laughs> but then spat it out. One of whom uh, said it tasted like venison, but definitely was not human, um, which is a sort of interesting. There's some interesting knowledge base behind that particular. Yes. Yes. Um, and then uh, a a writer from I believe the New York Herald was dispatched to. Um, to figure out more, and this is about, so so this writer shows up in Kentucky and he gets a piece of the meat and then he hires a quote unquote Irish laborer that he's going to pay to to eat this meat, and and the guy at first the guy's like all right cool I'll eat this meat and then the meat is placed before him and he starts having all kinds of second and third and fourth thoughts <laughs> so it's it's hilarious and so he keeps trying to find ways to get out of this so first he says um, well I can't have meat without you know vegetables or something so like. The porter gets him some, you know, some sides, you know, and then he's like, well, I'm definitely going to need some, some whiskey to get, get through this. Right. I so, mean. you know, a uh, reporter lines up some shots and then um, once he's all out of dodges, finally the, the, the guy says, you know what? It's Lent. I can't have meat. And he walks out. And so good for him. Uh, good for yeah, him. That is, that is sort of the beginning of the story of the Kentucky meat shower. I don't know how much time we want to go into <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was definitely one of my favorite aspects of researching the book. I don't think you have to give away what it is or isn't, but we can say that technology today has kind of prevented this kind of phenomenon from happening, not from happening, but from, from not being explained at least. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I think that the Kentucky meat shower happens at a really fascinating time when you have sort of like international news, you have like wire services. So you have like, you know, you know, so like these, these stories like spread and I, yeah, like, uh, you know, like, so they spread very easily, 
but they are not duplicated. There weren't any other meat showers. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and uh, you know, it was a sort of interesting moment because like, you know, scientists did try and figure this out. There were, there was like, it went back and forth in several scientific journals, like what various people thought this meat was. Was it frog spawn? Was it nostoc? Was it vulture vomit? You know, any number of things. Um, so they, you know, they made a, they made a good faith effort to figure it out. There, none of the solutions were super conclusive, although some are more popular than others. But I think it is, it, yeah, it's it's a really interesting time in history um, when something like this was like, could be verified, but not explained. And yet sort of spread through, you know, the kind of viral network of wire services and newspapers and stuff like that. And so like it, it sort of taps in, not just to a weird event, but a weird event that happened that could have only have happened in you know that that period of time, the eighteen seventies, the second half of the nineteenth century, et cetera. So yeah, yeah. And you uh, you talk about that time being so. I guess the word is fertile because of how people are reckoning with the idea that science and religion are two separate entities. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think like you know the stuff that that informs or makes up the book, you know, like UFOs, cryptids, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Atlantis, raining meat, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's really, it's really interesting the way that, it, that for me, it was like, when I was, like at first I was like, well, where does this stuff come from? And so, you know, like I'm trying to figure out and like why it happened the way it happened, why it's sort of, you know, solidified in, in our consciousness the way it did and why, you know, like people like you and I like grew up, I don't know if you did, but like, you know, grew up watching In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy and the Time Life Mysteries and like then later the X-Files and stuff, all that stuff. But like, so right, so because like this stuff happened, quote unquote, you know, happened like hundreds of years ago, but it was like, it was very much just the work of God, right? You know, so mm -hmm. like, I, you know, like if if the sun turned blood red and cows all died, it was like, oh, well then, you know, great. You know, God is That's mad what at he us. Wanted. You know? and, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. You know, like it was, it was a very straightforward, even if people didn't understand why or what was happening, they had a very clear explanation and it was, it was fine. It was done. And what happens in, yeah, like, you know, really by the 19th century is like that, that explanation in science as an explanation starts to sort of break off from one another. And there are now these kind of two competing things and you get, you know, the kind of wars of religion and science that come to dominate, you know, the 19th and then into the 20th century. And like, and, you know, that I, I feel like people know a lot about, you know, or sort of like at least have a kind of armchair understanding of, you know, creationism and, you know, dinosaurs and all that stuff. But like, there's this whole other set of weird crap that like kind of falls directly in the middle of that like war, you know, because mm -hmm. like neither science nor religion really wants to touch UFOs or the Loch Ness Monster. These are like not things that either camp is like super stoked about. Like they'll both kind of make these kind of half-hearted attempts, right? You're like, oh, maybe it's a dinosaur or uh, I don't know, maybe it's an angel, you know, but like after a while, UFOs, it would, yeah, it's like, oh, these are angels, I guess, whatever. Um, but they get kind of bored of it pretty easily. And then what's left is like, is this weird remainder pile of unexplained bizarre crap that's really like scientists don't want and like, you know, religious philosophers don't want. And that, that became kind of the core of what the book ended up being about. So. And, and it's amazing how, I mean, you talk about how the idea of, am I saying this right? Lemuria. 
Lemuria, yeah. Lemuria. Well, I, I say it. I, maybe I'm saying it wrong too. <laughs> um, was started, and I didn't know it actually had to do with the fact that lemurs were found. Oh, right. Yeah, right. So, right. Um, so, Lemuria, yeah, because it's like, it's one of these weird through lines. And I think probably the first time I, I, I heard of Lemuria was um, sort of the famous book that kind of launches the UFO craze is a, um, is a sort of novel based on a, um, a guy who was likely schizophrenics, kind of like, you know, paranoid ramblings that, that a science fiction magazine editor turned into a novel. And he decided to title it, I Remember Lemuria. So like, you know, and so like the UFO craze was sort of based on this weird earlier idea that you have to like this. So like, it, yeah, so right. And it goes all the way back to a legitimate geological idea that maybe there was a continent that connected Madagascar and India that subsequently sunk. Um, and that explains why there are lemurs in both places, but not in like mainland Africa. And so the idea was like, well, it's the continent that where lemurs live. So it was Lemuria. And so like, you know, but and like, again, that was like 1854 or whatever. And like, it got, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, geologist is like, maybe this works. And other people are like, nah, it doesn't work. And so they kind of abandoned it. And so, you know, mainstream geology is like, yeah, well, that was cool, but we're, we're not, we're not going with that. And meanwhile, again, like, you know, theosophists, Madame Blavatsky and, you know, fringe people and ultimately weirdos hanging out in Mount Shasta and science fiction magazine editors are like, we will take this concept, <laughs> yes. run, with it you so. can have your continental drift <laughs> right exactly exactly we're just taking the cool name and this weird fake civilization under the sea and you talk about how so much of it in the 19th century in particular the that diffusionism which is you might have to explain it to me a little bit more but that it's it's a fairly racist belief that there must have been something fantastical about earlier people because they could not have been smart enough or capable enough to um, create wonderful things like Egyptian pyramids on their own. Right, yeah, so diffusionism um, is, is the term for um, like uh, ancient aliens. If, people watch that show on the History Channel. Basically this idea that like um, all of these ancient civilizations did not evolve, um, you know, by themselves, ex nihilo or however you say that, um, but they in fact all came from one kind of central place. So, you know, often it is, it is the lost continent of Atlantis. So the lost continent of Atlantis is like where this culture actually came from, but it sank. And, you know, and the people who lived there, who managed to escape, they took boats to Peru and Egypt and Greece, and then they made the Nazca lines and the Egyptian pyramids and or Stonehenge or whatever. That's not in Greece, but you know what I'm saying. And like, and so the idea being that like, that like all of these, all of these cultures come from that kind of central, they've all diffused out from that central thing. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not a strong hypothesis, but I think more importantly, as you mentioned, it's sort of, it has this kind of low key, actually not very low key, um, kind of like kind of chauvinistic um, belief that, um, you know, the Egyptians being a non-European, non-Western culture could not have possibly built these things on their own. You know, the, that like, even though it's 
there's like hieroglyphics explaining exactly like here's, you know, it's like an Ikea instruction manual. Here's exactly how we built the pyramid. <laughs> Go out, get yourself. And why? Like a, like a crap ton of stones and more people than you can possibly imagine. And you too can build some. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here's exactly why we do. So it's like, so, right. So it's, it's just, yeah. So that's the kind of, that's diffusionism. And, and it, um, you know, in the, in the book, I, you know, like it's, uh, the main champion is this guy, Ignatius Donnelly, who was the guy who really um, popularized the notion of the lost continent of Atlantis. Like he was a um, weirdo congressman who um, lost an election and decided to reinvent himself as a crank author. So he, he published this book that like became a huge bestseller. Um, and it was all about, you know, the lost continent of Atlantis. It really, it really seized on, again, it seized on a moment in a way that, uh, I don't know that would, it would have had the same effect at any other time. You know, he was kind of, he was to quote the big Lebowski, he's the man for his place in time. <laughs> and, and speaking of, you mentioned that he's a crank. Tell, tell me more about what that means. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a kind of term of art that uh, has maybe fallen a little bit of, out of fashion, but it, I think it's it's really useful to think of, like the 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 crank. I mean, like now, I think you just call him like a conspiracy theorist. The crank mm-hmm. is somebody who has a specific argument about the way the world works, be it you know aliens, be it the lost continent of Atlantis, be it FEMA camps, whatever. And so the crank is like you know, the person who just has like, has a theory, you know, and can't wait to tell you about it and really doesn't care whether or not uh, anybody, well, I mean, he does care if anybody believes it, but it's, you know, it's not going to go, it's not going to go to college to like, not going to like go to history, you know, get a history degree to like prove his right. theory. It's just going to be, he's an armchair crank. I'm, I'm using the he pronoun, but of course there are all manners, <laughs> all genders of cranks. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so that's, yeah, that's kind of the, that's kind of the crank in a nutshell. And, and, and it was such a, an interesting side note that I didn't know that like one of the men who studied a group of UFO believers coined the term cognitive dissonance. Oh, right. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, it's, it's a great book. And again, if you really want to understand the way the modern world works, uh, Leon Festinger's when prophecy fails is, is a really excellent way to really think through like what is happening, like what this current brand of craziness is, which is basically that um, uh, Leon Festinger, who is a sociologist and a couple of his grad students uh, who are co-authored in the book, but I forget their name right now, um, basically learned about this UFO cult. And the UFO cult was um, run by this woman, Marion Keach, and she was basically like, the UFOs are coming, this is 1955, the UFOs are coming December 14th, 1955, they're gonna take us all away and whoever was left is gonna get drowned in a flood. And so, uh, Festinger and his grad students basically infiltrated the cult, passed themselves off as cult members to kind of understand what happened. And the real question was like, what happens when December 12th comes and goes and there's no UFOs and there's no flood? And like, and, and what happens is um, some of the members drift away. So the, the group got a lot smaller after that. You know, the, you know, this kind of UFO rapture doesn't happen. But the people who are left behind <laughs> um, <laughs> really doubled down on the belief, right? So it's right. like, so, you know, and that's, that's the idea of cognitive dissonance. It's like, you know, like what happens when you, you are expecting this thing to happen and it unequivocally does not happen. You either abandon the belief or you start to abandon 
the facts that are getting in the way of the belief. And like, you know, and again, I mean, like where we're at right now in America, I think is so much of like, it's not, it's no longer about telling, you know, whatever lies or conspiracy theories people believe, it's no longer about telling them the truth. The truth is simply not enough because they, they're in this realm of cognitive dissonance where um, the belief has superseded any, any interest in what the truth actually is and, and the, and truth that gets in the way of the belief is just going to be roundly dismissed. So, so it's more about understanding the belief and what the belief is motivated by and, and what is driving that person to believe that, that core idea rather than just sort of assuming that just, you can just come along with like Wikipedia and just debunk it and <laughs> be like, Oh, I feel better now. Cause that, that literally never happens. Yeah. I can see now even in myself, right? Like <laughs> there are conspiracy theories that rely on distrust of the government, which I have become open to in all sorts of new right, ways right. since 2016 <laughs> and of science. Like I, I, I understand where that distrust comes from. So much of what we believe and what we fear comes from a real concern. I hadn't considered that like Area 51, this famed spot in the desert where apparently all sorts of alien stuff is happening, um, <laughs> kind of mirrored the Manhattan Project. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's what I, what I got to in this book. I mean, yes, like on the one hand, I, I want to push back against a lot of conspiracy theories and like, um, and you know, for all you, all you parents at home, vaccinate your kids. Um, you hey. know, like, you know, it's sort of like, like <laughs> these things are sort of obvious and, and whatever, and, and we shouldn't feel, we shouldn't beat around the bush around some of these things, but I'm also like, right. Like, um, you know, the, the anti-vax movement to, to pick an example that's not in the book, but, um, you know, for better, for worse comes out of a period in the 1980s when, um, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment had become well known. Uh, there were uh, lots of sort of, you know, Aaron Brockovich style cases of like, you know, poisoning of local groundwaters right. by, you know, like that were covered up by, by big government. So it's like, there was an error, there is a reason to be distrustful of, you know, what people are putting in your bodies. And, and so the answer is not, ergo, anti-vaxxers have a leg to stand on. The, the answer is, how do we rebuild that that communal trust, and how do we sort of how do we sort of recognize that fear without um, validating the prescription? You know, and I think um, you know, like Eulabis's book on immunity, I think does that quite well in the way that she talks about like like it. it I mean, again, I don't have kids, so I don't I don't know this firsthand, but you know, the way she describes basically like it is, you want the best for your child, you don't want to poison or pollute your child, and you know, like whatever. So so right. So within the 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 book what I found really interesting I mean yeah as you as you mentioned you know I grew up X-Files era with this idea of Area 51 and these kind of secret off off limits uh desert bases where who knows what's going on and you know maybe some alien technology is there yada 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 and again I mean that's that's fiction but it comes out of I mean you know that's what the Manhattan Project looked like it was an off-limits section of the desert that was creating a literally unimaginable weapon, um, you know? And so it's like, so again, it's like the, the, the fears are not wrong. It's how you process the fears and how, how you kind of thread that needle between, you know, like 
basically trying to understand how these things take root. So, you know, I mean, I I think a lot about conspiracy theories and you always have to kind of remind yourself there, like there are active conspiracies, you know, Watergate was a conspiracy, the Iran-Contra affair was a conspiracy. It's like these things do exist, but then the question is, you know, with like, with both of those examples, uh, Watergate and Iran-Contra, it's like, how do you find out about these things? You ask the secretaries, you ask the janitors, you know, it's because like, like, you know, that's what Woodward and Bernstein did. They just like right. went around asking like, you know, like the secretaries would be like, tell me, tell me what you know. And that's how they, that's how they sort of crack the case. Whereas, you know, Area 51 is this fantastically complicated secret installation. And it's this real question of like, well, who cooks the food? You know, where's the, you know, like, <laughs> right. where's the bus driver? And in fact, and so like, it gets crazier and crazier. So like Bob Lazar, who was one of the big proponents of the Area 51 theory, like he had to come up with an answer for this. And his answer was, because he talks about there's a, there was an incident, quote unquote, an incident that happened mm-hmm. in the late 70s where there, was a, there were a bunch of scientists, there were a bunch of aliens, there was a disagreement or a miscommunication, there was a miscommunication between the scientists and the aliens and the aliens pulled out their laser guns and eviscerated 50 scientists, just killed them, just liquefied them. Mm-hmm. Sucks, sucks to be those scientists, right? Yeah, and so, so then the question is like, Bob, where are the obituaries? (laughs) Where where are the grieving families who are like, we want to know what happened to our PhD husband or wife or whatever, you know? And so like, so Bob Lazar is like, okay, well, the thing is, is that the government goes around to orphanages and they select highly intelligent orphans who have no families and they, they adopt them and then they train them so that they're not connected. You know, so like, that's the thing. It's like, like, you can, you can, if you just like, if you, if you're unsure, if you're like, I don't know, maybe this is true. I'm always like, okay, what are the, what are the mechanics? What are the logistics? What is the infrastructure that allows this conspiracy to work? Because it is all, it is never going to be the case that the guys in pinstripe suits smoking cigars are going to take out their own trash. So there's always going to be infrastructure. <laughs> and like, and if, if there's a legit conspiracy, that's, that seems to be like, that's the, that, usually historically that's that's how we find out about it so i i love in the book the the kind of evolution that you take us on in terms of what humans believed that aliens were or wanted and i was really struck by how in the 80s yeah i had just i had just been thinking about repressed memories and uh sybil um mm-hmm. from from a past episode of you're wrong about Oh, yeah, and, yeah, totally. and yes, of course, that 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 frames it in a whole different way. But there were so many people who were saying, "Oh, now I remember, I was abducted, I was probed, I was right." Yeah, and again, I mean, like to reference this, you know, the earlier kind of you know groundwell pollution and like you know um, stuff like that. It's like again, you have this time in the 1980s when, like, uh, for lack of a better term capitalism is making people sick, you know, capitalism Mm -hmm. is making people run down, you know, big business, whatever, whatever you want to phrase it is like making people feel off, feel wrong. And, and yet it's sort of, it's really difficult to articulate that. It's really difficult to say the reason we all feel run down and shitty is, I'm I'm sorry, I don't know if we could swear on this podcast. Um, Shitty's fine. (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, the reason that we feel this way is because you know, we're, we're getting our bodies sort of pumped with like, you know, like unhealthy, you know, like junk food and, or we're working 20 hours a day and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't really articulate that. So then somebody comes along and it's like, 
maybe the reason that you are uh, you feeling run down is because maybe an alien abducted you. You know, and suddenly it's like, oh, well, that's an idea I hadn't thought of. And then it's like, yeah, you know, then it becomes a kind of like it becomes a kind of catch-all way of of describing those symptoms because it's so open-ended and nebulous, right? You know, like what, how your, your alien abduction uh, response is going to be different than mine. And so it can, it can be this kind of black box that every, everybody's kind of effective response can get like shoved into. So anybody who just feels off in one way or another, you could go to and say, maybe it was an alien. And then you do some hypnosis and you, you know, which is not very good science and doesn't work if it's very good at, planting memories in people be they you know children or adults or whatever and then they come and then you know then that that um that belief just becomes more and more cemented and it becomes part of somebody's identity yeah you know i i i admire that you don't really come to many strong conclusions in this in this book but i the the last i'm going to spoil this the last line of the book is about clinging to wonder so I'm, I'm going to ask you prescriptive advice. <laughs> yeah. How do we, knowing what we know and being appropriately skeptical, cling to the wonder that perhaps there are unexplained things in the world that we should find phenomenal? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I should say the original version of this book um, was a lot more kind of kind of a, a kind of roll call of conspiracy theories, including, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion and like a bunch of other stuff that just was like, I was like, oh, this is a real, real downer of a book. So like, you know, like <laughs> one of the ways I, not that that stuff isn't important. I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of any of that crap, but like uh, I, I did want to reframe this in, in, because I thought, you know, the the search for the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil or uh, UFOs or Atlantis or whatever, like there's something more than just doom and paranoia in those. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I was like, okay, how do you separate out the, the paranoia that is like crept in, particularly with the alien stuff, this idea that the government is keeping crops from us. How do you separate that out from the original impulse, you know, which is a lot more about believing that the world is not fully solved, you know, to believe that, to want to believe, I mean, that's the X-Files line, you know, like I want to yes. believe, believe that there is like, there is a kind of another plane to this world. Um, and I think that is like, that's a, that's a really innate belief that so many of us share. I think, I think that it's healthy. I think that it is good. I don't see that in and of itself to be the issue. And so partly what I wanted to do with this book is again, kind of tease that out and say like, you know, the desire to want to know more about the world, the desire to believe that, you know, science and or religion doesn't necessarily have it all figured out. That's great. I mean, scientists don't believe they have it all figured out, you know? So, you know, it's not like, it's not like in and of itself, it's anti-science. It's, you know, it's the method and the means that you go about it that determine, you know, what you can, you know, like whether or not you're, you're taking this, this kind of desire for wonder and into a kind of weird path. And so, you know, that's why, you know, I, I talk a lot about cranks because the, 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 the idea of a crank or a conspiracy theorist is, is to provide a solution. And I think once you provide a solution for the unexplainable, you're really running into um, some, some potentially, you know, problem or not problematic, but just kind of dicey, you know, like, I mean, like there are stories about 
there are explanations for what happened in Kentucky um, with the meat shower. And I find some of them more plausible than others. Um, but I ultimately love the fact that none of them is perfect, you know? Yeah. And so there's always going to be just like a little bit of remainder, a little bit of doubt. And I don't, I don't want to assert my own belief as to what happened. I actually, I'm happiest not knowing, not thinking that I have a belief. I'm happiest just being excited that this thing happened and nobody is quite sure what it means. And just believing that the world is filled with such things. Cause I think that is cool. That is so cool. <laughs> Colin, thank you so much. Um, before we go, I'm going to ask you for some book recommendations, please. Um, cool. Uh, what, am, what am I, I'm going to turn and look at my bookshelf so I can remember. Um, so most recently I've been reading, um, Joshua Bennett, who is a poet. Um, his book, The Sobbing School is amazing. Um, as well as Gabrielle Sybil, who is a performance artist. Um, I picked up her book, Swallow the Fish, kind of on a whim at, at, at an AWP book fair many years ago. Wow. I think. Um, and I was like, I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not much into performance art, but whatever, this book is cool. And I ended up loving it. So I just, um, am reading her new one, Experiments in Joy. Uh, so I'm a fan of, of those two people most recently. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I have read lately that I have really loved, but I don't know. Yeah. Read, read Josh Bennett and, um, great. and, uh, Gabriel Sybil. They're both great. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was super fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.